0: Either there, me hearties, and welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast. My name is Matt Valor, and this is episode 5 of The Second Voyage. It's nearly Christmas! Ho, 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 ho! I hope you're feeling festive and not letting the impending climate apocalypse, or the slow breakdown of our political institutions, or the hatred of vulnerable migrants... Get you down. After all, there's mistletoe and mince pies and a bearded white man who appears out of the sky to make everything okay. Ho, ho, ho! Ah, oh, me hearties. Maybe it's just the weather, but I am um, feeling a tad on the bleak side of things. I live in this beautiful place called Cornwall. It's an ancient nation colonised long ago by the English and I live on the side of a steep hill uh, where a creek comes inland from a tidal estuary and I record this podcast in my yellow shed uh, which now has a little pirate hanging over the door thanks to my good mate Marcus Kerno, who uh, came over to visit from Melbourne in Australia. Uh, so I'm on this hillside and the shed has windows uh, so I can see quite a long way. Uh, It's amazing, really. Uh, But the view changes a lot with the seasons. Uh, In the summer, it's green and full of life. But once we hit winter, it's just bleak and barren. And the clouds are dark and heavy. And it does affect me quite a lot. I don't know if you find this, but I find I have to take care of my own mental well-being a lot more at this time of year. But Brexit is getting me down a bit, to be honest. I don't personally want to leave the EU, but the thing that is really affecting me is what the whole process has done to British society. I'm looking around the world, and it seems like similar... Divisions are elsewhere. America, of course. Nuff said. Australia, what's going on? I'm reluctant to mention the name of your Prime Minister uh, in case it's changed by tomorrow when I have to upload this podcast. Seems like a lot of us are hostage to right-wing parties tearing themselves apart but still somehow running the show. But there is literally only one week to go until the big white man in the sky comes to relieve our pain with an injection of consumer capitalist spectacle. Sort of like Tony Blair with a beard. You know, red on the outside. (laughs) Ha all this Northern Hemisphere blues, eh? You Antipodeans. With your beaches and your sunshine and you're throwing another shrimp on the barbie. You know, I've been really privileged to travel a lot over the last five years. Uh, I think I've visited something like 30 different places across all six continents. And, you know, the biggest culture shock, the, the thing that weirded me out the most was walking down Burke Street in Melbourne one December with all the Christmas decorations up. I think it's Burke Street, right? The one, this one with like a big department store uh, with a huge window display and people queuing to view it and then all these decorations right across the street kind of hanging from up high. I never really thought about it before, but British Christmas imagery, uh, and American, of course, because there's no escape. The backdrop of winter is is really integral to the whole vibe. So walking down Burke Street and uh, I'm in my shorts and my t-shirt and the sky is perfectly blue with the early summer sun and there's Santa Claus and a snowman uh, and, you know, maybe there's like the odd penguin in a Santa hat, you know, just to show that we're nearer the South Pole. But the whole thing is very European, even to the point of... there I once saw a Christmas wreath, uh, which is a tradition drawn from the winter solstice, and yet the whole thing is also sort of not quite European. There's something uh, recognisably different about it, and genuinely, it discombobulated me the first time I saw it. Now, Christmas on Burke Street is just one example of something that is increasingly common around the world which is the experience of a hybrid culture hybrid cultures are not a modern invention terra set off from ur of the chaldeans and took his family to a new people in a new place but the technological advances that mean we can travel so easily and cheaply plus The rapid global trend of humans moving to megacities, plus the utterly disruptive advent of the internet, which brings people together in all kinds of unexpected ways, has meant that cross-cultural interaction is now the norm for the majority of people on the planet. And that experience leads inevitably to the proliferation of hybrid cultures. This is an episode about hybrids. I want to pause in the story so far and look back for a moment. We've still got a long way to go in this second voyage but we've journeyed through the whole of Genesis which is no mean feat and my reading of Genesis has been a story about hybrids. Britain's national dish, it has been claimed sometimes, uh, is now a curry called chicken tikka masala. It's Indian food, uh, but it was invented in Glasgow or Birmingham, uh, depending on who you talk to. It's a hybrid, but the hybrid is not one part India plus one part Britain. The hybrid only really makes sense when it's a moment in a story. Indian chefs are in the West Midlands or Scotland or wherever inventing new takeaway dishes. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. First of all, the chefs who invented the tikka masala were actually Bangladeshis from an area of the Indian subcontinent fighting for independence in the decades after the end of British rule. So even calling tikka masala Indian food evokes a history of empire in which Bengal was thrown in together with other regions and peoples into a political and cultural melting pot, which from afar could be exoticized and romanticised, but which actually represents a very real history. Of oppression, so on the one hand, tikka masala is a triumph by a group of immigrants who have created something new in an often inhospitable society that eventually becomes beloved by all. But on the other hand, its hybrid nature is a reminder that Britain plus India is not a symmetrical equation. It's asymmetry the power difference between the two makes the hybrid more complex and more contested and we could say similar things about Christmas decorations in Burke Street on the one hand it's got its own hybrid thing going on there's cultural symbolism uh, that's a legacy of the British Empire uh, a very complex and difficult relationship There's also clearly American influences that you'd expect in the main shopping district of the CBD. But then the whole thing has been kind of Aussie-fied. But then even the stereotype of the Aussie ignores that much more difficult relationship between European settlers of all classes and the Aboriginal peoples whose cultures are I couldn't see acknowledged anywhere in the Christmas decorations on Burke Street. I've referred several times to the context for the final editing of Genesis as a context obsessed with racial and religious purity and how that demand for purity is made by an Israelite governor and priest but on behalf of the Persian imperial state. Hybrids can be threatening, but the asymmetry of power relations means that they threaten in different ways. Hybrid culture introduces something foreign into our experience, but our relationship to that foreignness is asymmetrical. Sometimes the foreign has more power than we do. The irony of the forced separation of families by Ezra and Nehemiah was that it was all done in the name of a foreign power. Ezra and Nehemiah are easy to criticise, but they were facing the presence of an intolerable hybrid in the Persian Empire among them, which could extinguish their very existence at any moment. When you can't rid yourself of the more powerful foreign element, you turn on the less powerful foreign element. But the less powerful foreign element in a hybrid culture can also be genuinely threatening. A caravan of migrants approaching the southern US border Boatloads reaching the coastline of Europe or Australia. There are all kinds of bogus threats fabricated in a desperate quest to justify turning away an incoming foreign element, however vulnerable. A security risk. Can't afford it. Not enough room. But what this all masks is the real sense of threat which is existential, that a way of life might be undermined, extinguished even by the presence of a foreign element that can't be controlled. A tikka masala is one thing. Those Bangladeshi mosques are something else. And of course, unspoken is the haunting threat of a demand for justice that the foreign has a legitimate claim to make against us. What if the poverty or war or climate change that brought migrants here was in part our doing? And this is what takes us back to Abraham and the near sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Derrida's reading of this story explored the ethical impossibility of acting responsibly, that we can never adequately fulfil every ethical demand placed upon us. And yet, he said, through the organisation of our societies, we set up, The sacrifice of young lives every day as we exploit economies, plunder resources and withhold the means to save lives, whether from hunger or disease or war. And he's right. We don't lack the resources to practically eradicate all these things. We simply lack the will, the collective responsibility. So we could absorb the foreign and undergo the change that foreignness would create in a new hybrid culture. We could do that. We just don't want to. Because a hybrid culture will inevitably catch us up in its reaction and transform us in the process. And it feels way out of our control. So Brexit, again, for a minute. Like many people who voted to remain, I spent the weeks that followed that 2016 referendum reading what felt like the whole internet, uh, searching for some insight to make sense of a political event that I honestly didn't see coming. It's not so much that I didn't think that the Leave campaign would win by the time we actually got to the vote. It's that in all polling, just five years ago, Britain's relationship with the EU didn't even feature on any list of people's concerns. And then suddenly, it's the defining issue of our time. And not only that, but our cultural conversations got much nastier. And what seemed like an increasingly progressive, multicultural society pretty quickly was revealed as something quite different. And I was bewildered by it all. And so I did read a whole bunch of stuff trying to make sense of it. And there's this big economic argument right, about the whole thing. Leave voting was much higher in areas of the UK that had been Deindustrialized in the 1980s and hadn't really seen any significant investment since. In fact, you can actually create a stronger correlation if you mapped votes for Brexit with the UK's coal fields. And obviously the financial crash of 2008 exposed the economic fragility of these regions and then there's a change in government, uh, massive spending cuts, and so by 2016... These places and their people are the left behind. And that's become a pretty standard analysis from across the political spectrum. And very similar things are said about the equally unexpected Trump vote in 2016. His main voter base was in the post-industrial wastelands that have suffered from globalization. But there was this one particular blog post uh, which I read, um, which I should credit. It's flipchartfairytales.wordpress.com. Uh, and it really got me thinking quite differently. It's actually changed the way I've thought about both Brexit and Trump since then. Uh, it's written by a guy who just calls himself uh, Rick, Flipchart Rick. Uh, he does a good bit of statistical correlation. Which I know is the real reason that you all listen to the Bible Pirate podcast. <laughs> you stats fiends, you. Okay, well, look, it's nearly Christmas, so as a special treat, statistically, if you correlate Brexit votes with regions of the UK deindustrialised under Margaret Thatcher, you get a reasonable correlation. Now, correlation is not causation, of course, folks. I know you wouldn't want me falling down that particular rabbit hole, but correlations are like an unusual smell. They're worth investigating further. So there's a correlation between deindustrialised regions and Brexit votes. So far, so standard. But here's the really interesting thing. If you correlate Brexit votes with views on the death penalty you get a really strong correlation. Like someone's just let off an absolutely outrageous Trump and there's just no way you can't not hold the culprit accountable. Actually, just on a point of cultural translation here, I just want to check that listeners in the US know what your president's name means in Britain. A Trump is human rear exhaust. A full-on bottom burping... Cheek-squeaking butt-yodel. You basically elected as president a man whose name is the American equivalent of Nigel Fart. If I was called Nigel Fart, I think I'd want to change my name to something more sophisticated and exotic to cast a mirage over my otherwise odorous persona. Nigel Fart. Mirage. I wonder anyway, the death penalty. Right, so you can cut these stats by four different income strata and it makes precisely no difference. So whether you're stinking rich, dirt poor or anything in between, the more enthusiastically you support the death penalty, the more likely you were to vote for Brexit. That is the much stronger statistical correlation than which region of the UK you live in, which possibly tells quite a different story. So according to Flipchart Rick, there's been two different narratives going on. So if you're on the left politically, then the story is over the last 40 years, the right have had all the power. Since Thatcher was elected in the UK, Reagan in the US, economic policy has been basically neoliberal. Workers' rights have been eroded, regulations relaxed, and most importantly, markets opened. And when Bill Clinton and Tony Blair took office representing traditionally left-wing parties, they basically kept the fundamentals of these neoliberal policies intact. So the right have had it their way. But if you're on the right, then the story is very different. Over the last 40 years, the left have had all the power. Abortion has been legalised. LGBT experience normalised. The role of women in society uh, is drastically changed. And multiculturalism has become the norm. Even right-wing governments have struggled to roll back these changes and some have even gone the opposite direction. It was the Conservative government in the UK that legalised gay marriage, for example. So in that story, it's the left... Who've had it their way? So views on the death penalty then become this proxy for views on social policy generally. Votes for Brexit and votes for Trump are votes from people who feel left behind not just economically but culturally as well. And so the spectre of new cultural hybrids, the possibility of even more confusion, means being even more lost. Now, I'm not trying to defend any of this. I'm trying to understand it. And I'm also trying to look in the mirror. Because it's not difficult to point the finger and say... Many Lee voters were racist, many Trump voters are racist. These were campaigns fought with real hostility to immigrants, to anybody from elsewhere, to anything foreign. But it's easy not to be racist when the whole of society is set up to work for you. I mean, I don't need to be racist. I've got a whole societal structure to be racist on my behalf. I can be my metropolitan, liberal, elite, smug self and scorn all those racist scum while society gets on with privileging me above everybody else. The foreign, the other, terrifies all of us at some level. The fear of the other, particularly of migrants that has gripped our political cultures at the moment is not going to be undone by careful argument or by pointing out just how wrong it is. Because it is the result of deep seated existential anxiety, the fear of hybrid cultures. This story in Genesis, at least for me, reading it at this point in history, is about hybrid cultures and how we react to the presence of foreignness and it, it seems to me that we live in a world in which the hybridization of culture is not only set in motion but it is constantly accelerating it is unstoppable it is utterly and completely out of control No amount of building walls, exiting political unions, even restricting travel or trying to regulate the internet will tame the relentless process of hybridisation. And it produces anxiety because we're all a bit scared of the unfamiliar. It's just a very basic human experience. And that Anxiety can drive us to want to control things more. But control is a fantasy. The people who confidently say we're going to take back control are engaging in fantasy play. And I don't mean that as a joke. I mean it really seriously. I talked about this in uh, episode five of The Maiden Voyage. Eventually, the fantasy of control leads to the fantasy of an apocalypse where we start believing that if we could just reset everything and start again. But Genesis opens up with a hybrid God, Elohim, part Canaanite, part Israelite, a plural proper name, looking on the face of the foreign, of the other, that represents chaos to Elohim's order. But from that hybrid moment of intolerable anxiety Elohim creates and shapes a world and in fact the prologue to Genesis those first 11 chapters is bookended by the same relentless hybridity as the story of Babel exposes the instability of any original that the very name of God is confusion but confusion to what And to whom? What is it that gets threatened by this instability? It is the great city that wants to make a name for itself that is confused and so thwarted. The great city on the plains of Shinar, that's not a difficult code to crack. This is Babylon. But as we read in the story of Joseph, Egypt is also code for Babylon, which in turn becomes code for Persia. It is the way of the empires to separate, but the way of the gods to confuse. The way of the empires to divide and rule, but the way of the gods to produce hybrids and instability, but from them to create. At least that was the way of Elohim. Yahweh was insecure about humans taking his place, becoming like the gods, and putting down roots in land. So he tore woman from man, separated humans from gods, and drove a wedge between brothers, which led to murder. And yet, in the story of the sacrifice that uh, I've made central to this reading of the rest of Genesis, it was Elohim that commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Yahweh, who rescued him, the hybrid God, Elohim, who insists that fidelity to one's own people, one's own family, one's own cultural future, be sacrificed to the demands of a hybrid world. And the other God, Yahweh, who cuts loose and makes for the desert, Both Elohim and Yahweh destabilize the projects of empire. But one responds by making hybrids. The other responds by going pirate. It's Yahweh who makes temporary autonomous zones away from the empire, but also away from the relentless demands of Elohim's hybrid world whether it's Tikka Masala, Christmas on Burke Street, or any other of the hybrid results of globalization, the asymmetry of power is always evident. You can travel to the most remote places on the planet and still find American fashion, American technology, and America's language. Elohim wants to frustrate the separation wrought by empire. The divide and rule of imperial strategy. But Elohim has insufficiently reckoned with the imperial power still present in hybridity. Of course you can look on the face of the other and create a whole new world. If you're a god, how magnanimous. Yahweh understands the perils of hybridity, especially for the family of Abraham, who could so easily be sacrificed to satisfy imperial whims. So which of these gods has it right? Is a question that will haunt the rest of this story, because these complex questions about hybrid cultures is what sets us up for the rest of the story in this second voyage because we are going to be reading one of the greatest migration stories of all time. It might not cover the furthest distance but surely it is the most dramatic. It's actually International Migrants Day today which feels like an appropriate place to say Merry Christmas Enjoy whatever hybrid cultural form of the festival you practice and I'll see you next year for more Stories Beyond the Horizon.